Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, well, welcome everybody again to the times they are a-changing, progressive Christianity, cancel culture, and the coming persecution. And so I want to recap where we've been because we're, we're looking at the fourth truth tonight and we've got new people each week and I just want to kind of recap these truths that the Bible teaches and then how they're attacked. So the, the first night we looked at truth number one and this is where we started back in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So truth number one, God is the sovereign creator and ruler of everything. He's in charge of everything. He's sovereign over everything. He's creator. He's created the universe. He sets the rules. Okay, how is that attacked today? The autonomous self is the ruler of all things, and self-expression is the highest value. You have no right to tell me how to live, what I can do. I just want to be me, and I can be whatever I want, regardless of any rules or, how God, or what God's word says. So that's truth number one. God is the sovereign creator and ruler of everything. Truth number two. The Bible is God's inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word. Um, Everything that we look at from here on out is an attack upon God's word. So it's like a house of cards. If you attack God's word and question God's word, then everything else you believe comes crumbling down because what determines what you believe if not God's, God's word? So the attack is... The Bible is not inerrant, which means the Bible does contain errors. The Bible is kind of a book of fables. We cannot be certain about what it says. The Bible brings up more questions than answers. The real issue comes in the questioning. But we can never be so dogmatic that we can be certain about absolute truth. So you can't have answers. You can just ask questions. And the joy is in asking the questions and never finding the answers. Okay, last week, truth number three. Jesus is the only way of salvation. We talked about that last week. The attack upon that is that Jesus is a good and helpful model for how we live, but we cannot be so narrow-minded to say that salvation comes exclusively through Jesus alone. So God is the creator. The Bible is absolutely true. And Jesus is the only way of salvation. Now, that's Christianity 101, okay? That seems like that would be like the basics. But those basic foundational truths are under attack. And so tonight, we get to truth number four. And we're really going to talk about three issues tonight. But let me just give it to you in, a, in the sentence here, okay? So truth number four. A holy God, these are carefully worded, a holy God must punish sin and rebellion through the substitutionary atonement of his son. Okay? So God is holy. God has to punish sin. God did that through having Jesus die on the cross in our place. Now, what's the attack on that? Here's the attack. The chief attribute of God is love, and we must not discuss his justice against sin, a bloody cross, or the reality of hell, because these things are just too offensive to modern sensibilities. 
Don't talk about hell. Don't talk about God's justice. Don't talk about God's wrath. Don't talk about a bloody cross. Don't talk about a holy God. Don't talk about sin. Those things are offensive. And if you take those things out, what are you left with? You're not really left with a gospel message. You're not, le- you're not met- left with Christianity. So in progressive Christianity, humans are not sinful and deserving of God's punishment. Basically, we're imperfect people. We're broken people. And we need to try our best to follow Jesus' example as a social activist to make this world a better place. If we just do enough good in the world, we can make this world a better place. And so the quote that I read earlier, okay, so this was funny. I, I'll, I'll do it again. I just, I just pulled up Facebook, okay? I do not know why this is on my feed, but the first thing that popped up, progressivechristianity.org. Wise words from Middle Collegiate Church. I have no idea where that is, but here's what they had on their post from a church. God cares infinitely more, infinitely more about making sure everyone has food, shelter, and health care than, quote, accepting Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. That's what the church put on their, their meme or their, their post. Okay. So that's progressive Christianity in a nutshell. We need to make the world a better place. Don't get into arguments about heaven or hell. Hell is really what we make it on, on earth here, and that's because there's a lot of inequity and injustice. And so let's try to make heaven on earth, and let's not worry about what happens after you die because we're not even really sure if hell is a real place. Okay, that, that's, that's progressive Christianity. Now, I think last week or a few weeks ago, I introduced Rob Bell. Remember, I'm name-dropping tonight because you need to know these names. Okay, so Rob Bell is a pastor about my age, who was a pastor of a megachurch back in the late, 2000, late 1990s, early 2000s. Um, he was an up-and-comer at a church of 10,000 people, and then he started going off the rails. In 2011, he came out with the book Love Wins, which basically he questioned whether Jesus is the only way of salvation. He questioned hell. And then in 2013, he came out in favor of gay marriage. Now he's on Oprah's TV show or whatever Oprah does, and he's just basically kind of really um, abandon the faith. But in his book, Love Wins, I'm going to give you some quotes tonight because you need to hear what they're saying in writing. Okay, so this is not me making this stuff up. This is what they're producing in their own books that are published that people buy. Okay, so Rob Bell, in the opening pages of his book, Love Wins, writes this. A staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyful place called heaven while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell. It's been clearly communicated to many that this belief is a central truth of the Christian faith, and to reject it is, in essence, to reject Jesus. This is misguided and toxic, and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness, and joy that the world desperately needs to hear. I want you to pay attention to the language he uses. It's misguided and toxic to say that Jesus is the only way of salvation, and if you don't trust in Jesus, you'll spend eternity in hell. That's misguided and toxic. Okay, Brian Zond. Brian Zond, I think he's in Missouri. He's a pastor. Um, He's kind of a progressive pastor. Um, This is what he wrote in his book. Jesus did not lay the foundation for an afterlife theology that claims all non-Christians go to hell. 
This has become a common way of thinking about heaven and hell. Christians go to heaven, non-Christians go to hell, but it is not based on anything Jesus ever said. Okay. They're not hiding their words here. All right, Richard Rohr. He is the Franciscan monk from New Mexico. He's popular on Oprah. Um, He is in favor of a lot of progressive things. He's kind of the grandfather right now of progressive Christianity. This is what he wrote about hell. Jesus tells us to love our enemies. Instead, according to our view, this God burns people for eternity. Most humans are more loving and forgiving than such a God, lowercase g. We've developed an unworkable and toxic image of God that a healthy person would never trust. Why would you want to spend even an hour in silent solitude and intimacy with such a God? Okay, do you understand the language they're using? It's toxic. It's misguided. It's unworkable to talk about what we would just say are the basics of Christianity. Okay, can I just say a basic truth? Can everybody agree with this? If you believe in Jesus, you go to heaven. If you don't, you go to hell. Is that pretty much basic Christianity? Okay. That's just basic Christianity. They're saying that that is misguided, unworkable, and toxic, if you preach that. Now, William Paul Young, he wrote The Shack. The movie came out a few years ago, The Shack. The book, I think, came out in 2008. He actually wrote a book called Lies We Believe About God. This is not the book, The Shack, but he wrote a book called Lies We Believe About God. This is what he said about the cross okay he said who originated the cross if god did then we worship a cosmic abuser who in divine wisdom created a means to torture human beings in the most painful and abhorrent manner how do religious people interpret the sacrifice of jesus they would declare it was god who killed jesus slaughtering him as a necessary appeasement for his bloodthirsty need for justice What other people in progressive Christianity are saying about the cross is that if God poured out his justice on Jesus, his son, that makes God a child abuser. Because why would you have Jesus be punished? And so God becomes a cosmic child abuser. And so they're going to use language like, this is twisted, this is toxic, this is unworkable, These things are not palatable to modern sensibilities. The modern person, if they hear these types of things about a bloody cross, about sin, about heaven, about hell, about a holy God, if you preach those things or talk about those things, the modern person is going to find that offensive. And so it's, it's toxic to talk about that. Okay, but let me ask you a question. Based upon what standard? What's their standard for saying this? Is their standard the Bible? It cannot be. Or their misinterpretation of the Bible. So what do they want? What kind of God do they want? They want a God who's only loving. Now, I'm not saying God's not love. Obviously, God is love, but they want a God who's only love. He accepts all types of sins. God never requires repentance. God would never punish sin. God would never have Jesus die in our place. And God would definitely never, ever send anybody to hell for eternity. That's not the God we want to worship. And like Richard Rohr says, why would you want to pray to this God? 
Now, J. Gresham Machen was very prophetic, and I don't mean that in the sense of like he was a prophet, but he, he spoke truth at a time when our nation was kind of going through some things. In 1923, so almost 100 years ago, be like 98 years ago, he wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism. This was back when a lot of the mainline denominations like Harvard and Yale and Princeton, which used to be Christian schools, were becoming liberal. And you kind of had the Scopes Monkey Trial and the Fundamentalist. And, the, and, the, and so right in the thick of it, in the 1920s, he wrote this book. And listen to what he says. This is what he was talking about. He called them liberal Christians back 100 years ago. Now they're called progressive Christians. They may even want to call themselves liberal Christians. But listen to what he said back 98 years ago. According to Christian belief, Jesus is our Savior, not by virtue of what he said, not even by virtue of what he was, but by what he did. He is our Savior, not because he inspired us to live the same kind of life that he lived, but because he took upon himself the dreadful guilt of our sins and bore it instead of us on the cross. Without that central truth, all the rest is devoid of real meaning. An example of self-sacrifice is useless to those who are under both the guilt and power of sin. Remember last week, who is Jesus to the progressive Christian? He's a model to be followed. He's a model to be followed. He's a social activist. You follow his model, you live like Jesus, you follow the teachings of Jesus. And if Jesus is all a model that you need to follow, then he doesn't really need to die on the cross for your sins. It doesn't really make sense for him to die on the cross for your sins because you're not really that much of a sinner and God kind of accepts you the way you are. And so just try to be a good social activist like Jesus and make the world a better place. And don't think about heaven or hell because that's not really a problem we need to worry about. Now, John Lennon, imagine. Imagine all the people. Okay, I'm going to read you the lyrics to imagine, okay? Now, I like the Beatles and I like you know, some of, some of John Lennon's stuff, but I'm just going to read you this. This, his song that came out, I think this is 1970, imagine. Listen to this. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. There's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no religion. Do what you want to do, and we'll create peace on earth. Now, as we look at this fourth truth tonight, I've broken it down into kind of three subcategories. Okay, so there are three major issues under attack in this current progressive Christian worldview attack upon biblical Christianity. Number one, there's an attack upon the depravity of humans who deserve God's wrath. Are humans sinful and do we deserve God's wrath? That's under attack. Number two, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And I'll talk about what that means. Jesus dying in our place, that's under attack. And then thirdly, the reality of hell as everlasting conscious torment. So let's talk about human sinfulness because Progressive Christians do not necessarily believe that humans are sinful, that they're born in a condition where they're, they've inherited sin, that we need salvation, um, those types of language. And I'll give you some, some quotes from them later on. So the Bible teaches 
that all people are born sinful and deserve God's judgment. Now, there's a guy named Philip Gully, and he's written a pretty popular book on progressive Christianity called If the Church Were Christian, Rediscovering the Values of Jesus. He basically said this, if you as a church regularly teach people that they're sinners, you are guilty of spiritual abuse. So I guess I'm a spiritual abuser. He also says Adam and Eve were not real people. It was just a myth about creation. So if Adam and Eve weren't real people and they didn't really sin and we didn't inherit sin from them, that causes a problem. And then he also says in his book, he does not like songs like Amazing Grace because it uses terms like a wretch, saved a wretch like that, that's, that's wrong language to call ourselves wretches. That, that's not true of who we are. Okay, so what saith the Bible? Okay, so let's turn to Romans chapter 3. What does the Bible say about people? Because you've probably run across this, this worldview. You've probably run across somebody in your life that says, I believe people are basically good. People are basically good. All right, Romans chapter 3. Let's start in verse 9. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Let me just kind of give you the history here. In Romans chapter 1, Paul is addressing the Gentiles and talking about how the Gentiles are sinful. In Romans chapter 2, he's addressing the Jews and saying, Jews, don't get all up on the Gentiles for being sinful. You're actually more accountable because you've got God's law and you're breaking it. So you're sinful too. So in chapter 3, he says, okay, I'm going to address both Jew and Gentile. Everybody's sinful. Universal sinfulness. So let's pick up in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of an asp is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Sin enslaves everyone as a powerful condition. What does Paul say there in verse 9? We have already charged that all, every single person, both Jew and Greek, is under sin. Under sin. You're under the power of sin. You're under the penalty of sin. You're under the pollution of sin. In other words, Paul says when you are under sin, this is before salvation, by the way, basically, fundamentally, every part of our nature our mind, our will, our emotions are in bondage to sin as a permanent enslaving condition that we inherited from Adam when he sinned in the garden. Okay, 
So I want to teach you a little bit of church history tonight because there was a heresy that came around in the 400s that's still around today. The heresy is called Pelagianism. Now, why is it called Pelagianism? Because it was named after a guy named Pelagius. Pelagius was a monk from Britain who taught for a short time in Rome toward the close of the 4th century. And basically, you've heard of Augustine or St. Augustine. Augustine wrote against Pelagius because of what Pelagius was teaching. So here's what Pelagius' main teaching was. Basically, I'm not going to go into all of his teaching, but in a nutshell, men or, or humans are born morally neutral with an equal capacity for either good or evil. So Pelagianism says, or Pelagius taught, that when Adam sinned in the garden, nothing was carried on to you today. You've not inherited a sin nature. You've not inherited corruption. Basically, every single person is born a blank slate. You're born a blank slate, and you choose to sin based upon your environment. And you could possibly become perfect and never sin, or you're going to sin if you have bad examples. So you can follow Adam's example by sinning, but you don't inherit any sin from Adam. Basically, you are morally neutral as a person. This was condemned as heresy by three church councils. The Council of Carthage, the Council of Ephesus, and the Council of Orange in the 400s and the 500s. So, you don't have to remember the name Pelagianism, but basically it's the idea of this. I'll give you some quotes from, I'll give you some slogans from Pelagianism. God helps those who help themselves. Everybody's basically born good. You're a product of your environment, but you can choose to sin or not sin. There's nothing fundamentally in you as a sinner when you're born that causes you to be deserving of God's justice. So, Paul here says, all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. So, are we born sinful? Psalm 51.5 says this. David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So the moment that you come out of your mother's womb, you are born a sinner. Sinful. It's your nature. Jeremiah 13, 23, Can an Ethiopian change his skin? A leopard change his spots? Then also, can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil? Let me ask you a question. An Ethiopian back in that time was somebody from Africa that had dark skin. Can an Ethiopian wake up one day and say, I want to change the pigment on my skin? Not unless he's Michael Jackson and goes through a bunch of different... I didn't mean to be rude there, but I'm just saying, can an Ethiopian... Can, can somebody wake up with dark skin and say, I want to change the light skin? Why can't you change your skin color? Because that's the way you were born. It's inherent to who you are. Okay, can a leopard change his spots? Can a leopard wake up one day and say, I don't want to be a leopard, I want to be a tiger. I want to have stripes, not spots. Can a leopard do that? Why? A leopard is born with spots. It's inherent to who the leopard is. Okay, then Jeremiah flips it and says, okay, then can you do good who are accustomed to evil? And what's the, what's the, what's the answer to the rhetorical question? No. You can't do good who are accustomed to evil. And what's the, what's the, what's the, um, 
The correlation, it's because you're born that way. The way an Ethiopian can't change its spot or skin, a leopard can't change its spots. You're a born a sinner. You can't change the way you are because fundamentally you're born in that condition. And Paul says, no one is righteous. No, not one. This comes from Psalm 14, 1 through 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. No one. No one understands. 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Now, does this mean you can't understand the facts of the gospel if somebody presents those to you? No. It just means fundamentally because you're in your sins, you really can't fully understand truth unless God does something to open your eyes to that. Uh, Ephesians 4, 17 through 18. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They're darkened. So no one seeks, no one understands, no one does good. We're darkened, we're born sinful. No one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. Now, you may object and say, well, wait a minute. I know people that kind of pray and people that are seeking God. What does it mean no one seeks God? Let me ask you a question. Do people seek God for God? Or do they seek God for the benefits that they're going to get from God? Somebody, you hear somebody say, that person's a seeker. They're seeking God. Well, the only way they're going to be seeking God is if God's first seeking them and drawing them to himself. So no one seeks after God. Colossians 1, 21 through 22. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You were once alienated. You were hostile. You were, you were separated from God. Titus 3, 3. For we... Ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. This was who we once were before salvation. All have turned aside there in verse 12. This comes from Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Verse 12, together they become worthless. In the original language, that word really means milk that's gone sour. You're spiritually sour milk. No one does good. No one does good. Not even one. Isaiah 64, 6. We've all become like one who's unclean. And all our righteous deeds, the good deeds we do, are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and like the wind take us away. And then Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, in Ephesians chapter 2, there are five descriptions of an unsaved person. Number one, you're spiritually dead. Number two, you're in bondage to Satan. Number three, you follow the world. Number four, you follow your flesh. And number five, you are by nature, by nature, by how you're born, you are born an object of God's wrath. You deserve God's justice. That is the dire picture of what the Bible describes about a person who does not have Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So let me just ask you a question. Is the Bible pretty clear about sin? But what would the progressive progressive Christian object? Here's three objections I think they may say. I object, Pastor Sean, you're committing spiritual abuse on these people. You've got to stop preaching about sin. Here's an objection they would say. We can't tell people they're sinners because this is intolerant and judgmental. It's intolerant to tell somebody they're a sinner. You're being judgmental. Who gives you the right to tell somebody they're doing something wrong? You hypocrite. You judgmental bigot. We can't tell people they're sinners. That's objection number one. Number two, well, we can't tell people they're sinners because this would make the message of God's love meaningless because God loves you just the way you are. You ever heard that before? That's a half-truth, right? Does God love you? Does God love you just the way you are? Or does God say, you need to repent and follow me? I would say this. God loves you too much to leave you the way you are if you're living in sin. He wants you to be in his will, which is where you can flourish and be the person God created you to be. So one of the things that the progressive Christians do, and even a lot of people do, is they pit one attribute of God against another attribute of God. Love is God's highest attribute. That's all God is, is love, love, love. Never talk about his holiness, never talk about his justice, never talk about his, his punishing sin. It's all about love. Is God love? Yes. Does God punish sin? Yes. You've got to keep those things in balance. And then here's the third thing. If we tell people they're sinful, we are spiritually abusing them. We should tell them how wonderful they are and help them achieve their full potential. So attack number one tonight is we cannot tell people they're sinners who deserve God's justice. Because if we do, we're being intolerant, we're being bigoted, we're being offensive, we're spiritually abusing them, and we're not letting them just be who they want to be. Because God, after all, loves them the way they are. Do you hear that from people out there in the world? So, if think about it this way. If there is no sin, why did Jesus have to die? What did Jesus die for? Our sins. But to them, he's just a good moral example that we have to follow. Okay, so let's move into the cross. They do not, progressive Christians do not like a penal substitutionary atonement. And I'm going to explain that. So the Bible says that Jesus died in the place of his people as a substitute, bearing God's justice against our sin. Now, this is kind of some technical language here. Maybe you've heard it, it's, you know, sometimes in, in theological terms they call it PSA, the penal substitutionary atonement. 
let's, let's break those words down. Penal. Penal comes from the word penalty. So this means that Jesus took the penalty that we deserved. Okay, so does sin demand a penalty? What's the wages of sin? Death. Okay, did Jesus take the penalty? Okay, so Jesus paid the penalty, penal, for our sins. Penal substitutionary. Okay, substitutionary is just a long word for substitute. That means Jesus died in our place. He offered himself on our behalf. He died for us in our place, on our behalf, as a substitute. Who should have been on the cross dying for sin? Every single one of us. But Jesus died in our place. Penal substitutionary atonement. Atonement was the actual death of Christ itself, the way in which he died. It's a sacrificial offering where he gave his life, he gave his blood, he died on the cross for our sins. The penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. Now, let me give you a good quote from Spurgeon, one of my heroes. In his sermon called The Blood of Sprinkling, he wrote this. It's one of my favorite, one of my favorite, I have a lot of favorite quotes from Spurgeon, but I like this one. If ever, this is back in the 1800s, if ever there should come a wretched day when all our pulpits shall be full of modern thought and the old doctrine of a substitutionary atonement shall be exploded, then will there remain no word of comfort for the guilty or hope for the despairing? Shall we speak with bated breath because some affected person shudders at the sound of the word blood? Or some cultured individual rebels at the old-fashioned thought of a sacrifice? Nay, verily, we will sooner have our tongue cut out than to cease to speak of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Spurgeon's like, I'm going to talk about the blood of Jesus, and if somebody gets uncomfortable, they're going to have to come cut my tongue out because I'm going to keep talking about it. Okay. So let's talk about the cross. What did Jesus accomplish for us on the cross? So 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 is kind of the gospel in a nutshell. It describes to us the, the content of the gospel. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Good news. I preach to you what you received and what you stand. Okay, you're standing. I preach this to you. You're standing in it. You're being saved in it. You're holding fast to the word I preach to you. Unless you preached in vain. What is this message, Paul, you preach to us? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, I'm going to talk about three things that Jesus accomplished on the cross. These all end in I-O-N, so I call them the Sean words. Or if you're from Cajunville, Sean. The first word is propitiation, okay? Propitiation. Propitiation, okay? So propitiation. It's a big word. We don't use it often, but in the older translations like the ESV, the New American Standard, King James, they actually use that Greek word propitiation. So what does it mean? Okay, let me give you the, the, the definition. On the cross, Jesus fully satisfied the justice of God. Propitiation is the removal of God's wrath and satisfaction or satisfying his justice by providing a substitute. Okay. In Christ Alone, one of our favorite songs, a modern hymn by the Gettys, what's one of the lyrics? 
Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Okay, the wrath of God was satisfied. Okay. There's a denomination, which will remain nameless, but it's in our, it's in our town, that had a problem with that lyric. And so they petitioned to change the lyric to, till on the cross when Jesus God, the love of Christ was something. The love of Christ was manifested. They, t- they didn't like the word wrath, so they replaced it with love. Well, Keith and Kristen Getty, who wrote in Christ Alone, says you can't change our lyrics. But it just gives you a modern-day example of how a modern-day denomination has a problem with the hymn because it talks about the wrath of God being satisfied by Jesus on the cross. They wanted to change the lyrics. So that's what propitiation is. Propitiation is where the, the wrath, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment, because when you start using the word wrath of God, people are like, whoa, wait a minute. Wrath of God, what is this all about? Are you Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God? What, what, what are you, some high, fire and hellstone, hell, hellfire and brimstone preacher? What, what is the wrath of God? Well, let's look at the scriptures that talk about that word. John, this is Jesus, John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. How much clearer can you be? If you don't believe in Jesus, the wrath of God remains upon you. Okay? Jesus, when he's dying on the cross, Matthew 27, 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama, sigbachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you? And what's the key word there? forsaken me in, and I can't quite explain this because I, I we can't fathom the depths of what Jesus experienced on the cross we can somewhat understand the physical suffering nails in his hands crucifixion we can somewhat understand the physical suffering of Jesus but we cannot be, even begin to understand the spiritual suffering in those moments Jesus was experiencing the penalty the justice the wrath of God that we should have experienced. He was, he was experiencing it in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, He, that's God the Father, made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus was made a sin offering on our behalf. Romans 3.25, you see that word? Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. A propitiation by his blood. And then 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now what's the objection here to propitiation? Why did one denomination say, we're going to take the wrath of God out of in Christ alone because it bothers us? We don't like that language. What's the objection? The objection would be this. God's chief attribute is love. Chief attribute. He would never, ever execute his anger toward Jesus on the cross for our sin. This shows that God is a bloodthirsty, cosmic child abuser. And that's the language they use. God is a bloodthirsty, cosmic child abuser, pouring out his wrath on Jesus as a whipping boy in our place. That's the language they use. Okay. The wrath of God. The word wrath is misunderstood. I used to use the word wrath of God a lot more on Sundays, but I've changed it to the justice of God. They mean the same thing, but sometimes I think the word wrath trips people up. I will use it, and I will continue to use it, but 
when people hear the word wrath of God, we've got to clearly define what we mean because it's a biblical term. Okay, Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is being revealed against ungodliness. It says it right there. God has wrath that's being revealed. Romans 2.5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Key word, righteous judgment. Righteous judgment on the day of wrath. Colossians 3, 5, and 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Okay. God is love. There's four expressions in the Bible that says God is something. God is light. God is love. God is spirit. And God is a consuming fire. And God is kind. Luke 6.35, we've been looking at this over the past couple weeks on Sunday morning. For he, the most high God, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So wrath is not necessarily an attribute of God. It's more of how God responds to sin. Wrath is God's action in punishing sin. Now, when you hear the word wrath, we often think of the word wrath as like Zeus throwing lightning bolts down on humans because Zeus had a bad hair day and he just flew off the handle. Wrath. Or over here in the nursery, you put two children in the room and give them one toy. You see wrath between the two kids fighting over, like child, child wrath. Okay. That is not what wrath is. Okay? God is never petty or selfish or had a bad hair day, or flies off the handle. Um, we need to understand that God does hate sin. He hates sin. And because of his holy, unchanging nature, he has to rightfully punish sin. So the righteous punishment of sin is his wrath. Righteous punishment of sin. We must never confuse wrath with rage. Yes, Jeff. Yes. 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 Coming, yes. Yes, that's a good point. So let me... Let me, let me go back and, all right, so I, I often say it like this. That's a good way to put it, Jeff. God's wrath is revealed in one of two ways. Number one, his wrath was poured out on Jesus in your place. And if you're connected to Jesus, you won't experience that wrath. 
Or, number two, God's wrath will be poured out forever in hell for eternity. And if you're without Jesus, you'll experience that. So I say go with number one. (laughs) I say go with number one. So the wrath of God was satisfied for his people on the cross in Christ. But if you don't trust in Christ, you will experience the wrath on the day of wrath in hell. Yeah, that's, that's what it is. Yeah, well, you can kind of say the wrath and judgment as well as kind of combining that all in with the the eternal wrath in hell. It's just the beginning of that. The beginning of that wrath. The final judgment. Yeah. Yeah, your sin was there. Yeah, it was, self, it was self-chosen. So, we must never confuse wrath with rage. Okay, that's a very important thing. Rage is out of control, it's petty, it's vindictive, it's sometimes senseless. People, like, you've seen people in a rage, out of control, senseless, petty, vindictive. Wrath, on the other hand, God's wrath, is always under control, It's righteously administered to those who deserve punishment. Now, this is not the type of language that our culture likes to hear. That God has to punish sin. Because I thought God loved you the way you are. I like the kind of God that's a distant grandfather up in the sky on his rocking chair that just kind of smiles when we kind of mess up and kind of is going to let everybody into heaven. So Jesus, propitiation means this. Jesus absorbed, took, paid the full penalty of God's justice against our sin, diverted it from us so it wouldn't come upon us. It came upon Jesus. Jesus took that. He satisfied it. The payment has been paid. That's why when Jesus, one of his last words on the cross was what? It is finished. It's paid in full. Okay, so propitiation is the biblical idea of Jesus dying in our place as a substitute, taking the wrath of God upon himself so that we would be spared that justice that we rightly deserve because the wages of sin is death and somebody's going to have to experience God's justice. You'll either experience it through Christ, I mean not experience it because Christ experienced it for you, or you'll experience it forever because you chose not to trust in Christ. Okay. But there's something else that Jesus did on the cross, reconciliation. Reconciliation. When a husband and wife divorce, oftentimes what is, what is said, they, they had irreconcilable differences. What does irreconcilable mean? They could never agree. There was never agreement. There was never peace. They could never, they could never make amends. They were always at odds. So when, when somebody's reconciled, that means you're brought back into a right relationship. So here's, here's what reconciliation means. Because of our sinful nature, we stand condemned and hostile against God as his enemy and are alienated from him. Through Christ's death on the cross, he brought us back into a right relationship with God And we now have peace with God through Jesus. We've been reconciled to the Father and can now stand in his presence accepted. 
God didn't need to be reconciled to us. We needed to be reconciled to God. He was the one that was offended. So Romans 5, 8 through 11 combines both the wrath of God and the reconciliation through blood. So Romans 5, 8 through 11. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. There's that language. For if while we were enemies, key word there, enemies, were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We've been saved from wrath through his blood. We've been reconciled to the Father through the death of Jesus. We were enemies. Enemies have to be reconciled. Enemies have to be brought together in in peace. Jesus brought those of us who were enemies into a right relationship with God so that we have peace with God. We're reunited with God. Colossians 1, 21 through 22 says, You were once alienated, alienated, separated, hostile, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. But now he's reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Okay, objection. Objection to reconciliation. Remember, progressive Christians were not that sinful. Humans are basically good people. We're not estranged and hostile and alienated from God. They don't need to be reconciled to God. They're already reconciled to God. Because after all, everybody's going to heaven. God saves everybody. That's the objection. Why would Jesus need to reconcile you to God? You're pretty much already saved in the first place. We've got to get this language of the Bible down. We're alienated, hostile, enemies, dead, separated, under God's wrath. If those things are true, then we need what? What's the opposite of, what's the opposite of war? Peace. What's the opposite of enemy? Friend. What's the opposite of wrath? Mercy. If, if we are all these sinful things, then somehow those things need to be taken away so we can get to God. What's the only way that can happen is by Jesus dying in our place to take care of all those things so that we can get to God. And remember last week, he's the only way to God. Okay, so propitiation the removal of God's wrath by Jesus dying in our place, reconciliation, bringing us back into a right relationship with the Father, a relationship of friendship and peace and reconciliation. Okay, there's another biblical word of what Jesus did on the cross, and that's redemption or redemption. Okay, redemption, redeem. Okay, because we're enslaved to sin and to the kingdom of Satan, we need to be rescued from bondage. Through Christ's atonement, He paid the ransom in his body and blood to release us from slavery of sin and to purchase us as his bride. Redemption carries the idea of being bought out of slavery. Okay, there's two images of redemption. The first image of redemption comes in the Old Testament. Where or what were the Israelites for 400 years in Egypt? What was their condition? They were physical 
slaves. They were slaves under the harsh taskmaster of Pharaoh. Some typology here. Pharaoh is kind of a type of Satan. Israelites being in bondage is a type of spiritual bondage. They're in physical bondage to taskmasters. How does Jesus release them? Or how does God release them in the Old Testament? Passover lamb. Blood of a lamb. Put the blood on the lintels and doorposts of the frame of the house. And then the angel of death passes over. And then they're redeemed out through the what? The Red Sea. So the biggest picture in the Old Testament of redemption is the nation of Israel being saved out of slavery into the promised land. In the New Testament, the word redemption or ransom came from the marketplace of slaves. They had slaves back in the Roman Empire. And if you were going to go buy a slave out of slavery, you would pay the slave master a ransom price. You'd pay the slave master a ransom price, and you'd release that person out of physical slavery, and they'd come and live in your home. So redemption, ransom, redeem, when the Bible uses this language, it's the idea that we're in spiritual bondage to sin, to Satan, we're in slavery, and when Jesus died on the cross, he rescued us out of that. He took us out of bondage. He took us out of slavery. Ephesians 1, 7. In him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed, that same word, redeemed, ransomed, bought, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not, you weren't bought with perishable things such as silver or gold. What were you bought with? The precious blood of of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So redemption is Jesus buys you, purchases you, frees you, rescues you out of spiritual slavery into freedom, into his family. Objection! What would a progressive Christian say? People don't need to be redeemed because they're not enslaved to sin. That's a strong language, enslaved to sin, bondage to sin. Now, they may have some bad habits now and then, but they're not enslaved to sin. They just kind of do some bad things now and then, but they're not enslaved. If somebody's enslaved to sin, what, what does that mean? That means it's, it's got a power over them. And if you go to them and say, man, you're, you're enslaved to sin, you, you've got to have Jesus rescue you. They might say, well, I kind of like the way I'm living, and what right do you have to tell me how to change? I want to keep doing what I'm doing. Okay, so, truth number one tonight, people are born sinful, under God's wrath, deserving of judgment, alienated, separated, estranged, dead in sin, no one's good. That's under attack. Number two, the cross is under attack. Jesus died in our place. He reconciled us. He redeemed us. Okay, the big issue that they also attack is the issue of hell. Okay, so what is the, we're going to switch to the third topic tonight, hell, which is not a pleasant subject. And, here, and let me just say this. No pastor or Bible teacher should ever talk about hell with, with like a glee or a joy. Um, there should always be a somberness, a um, seriousness when we talk about hell. Um, it's not a trivial subject. But here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that hell 
is a literal place of eternal conscious torment for all those who die in their sins and have not trusted Jesus for salvation. Okay, Brian McLaren, he's another progressive Christian. He wrote the book, A New Kind of Christianity. Um, Brian McLaren argues that hell turns God into a, quote, this is what he says, a deity who suffers from borderline personality disorder or some worse sociopathic diagnosis. Christians tell others that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and if you don't love God back and cooperate with God's plans in exactly the prescribed way, God will torture you with unimaginable abuse forever. This view has produced some dysfunctions of the Christian religion. Okay, let's just back up. I'm going to pick on progressive Christians tonight. They don't like God as creator. They don't like... The Bible is God's word. They don't like Jesus is the only way of salvation. They don't like the fact that people are sinners in need of salvation. They don't like the cross and substitutionary atonement, and they sure as hell don't like hell. Okay? I'm just going to say it that way. They don't like hell at all. They hate the concept of hell. It's hellish to them. Now, there are four major views on the subject of hell. Okay, so there's four major views out there that Christians have talked about on hell. Number one is the historic orthodox view, which is the view we would hold to. It states that hell is a real place of eternal conscious torment for those who die without a personal relationship with Christ. This is the view that's been held for the past 2,000 years, that hell is a real place. It's eternal. It's a place of torment. You're conscious there. It's a place for those who have not trusted Christ for salvation. Okay. Number two, and um, I have a friend, a Facebook friend, and I've debated him through a couple debates, and he and I have debated other people together. I'm not going to mention his name. Um, but he holds to the second view, and this view is gaining a lot more traction among evangelicals. I disagree with it, um, but I want you to be aware of it. It's called, there's two really words for it. One's called annihilationism. Um, the other word they use is conditional mortality. Um, annihilationism is a view that states that after the wicked have suffered the penalty of God's wrath for a time, God will annihilate them so they no longer exist. So it's kind of like having your cake and eat it too. They don't deny that God pours out his wrath. They don't deny hell. What they say is hell's not eternal and it's not conscious. You're conscious for a period, and once you've suffered the penalty up to a point, God just basically annihilates you and you no longer exist. You cease to exist eternally. You're annihilated. Um, or conditional mortality. And they would say, their argument is, because Adam sinned in the garden, he forfeited immortality for all people. So every person is going to eventually die and cease to exist. Only those who are born again get the privilege of living forever in heaven. Those that don't trust Jesus will suffer hell, but it won't be forever and they'll eventually be annihilated. Now, the question I asked is, at what point? How long does a person suffer? How long? What's the duration? How do you deal with the words like eternal that we're going to look at in just a few moments? 
and they have not given me an answer on that. But you need to be aware of this because um, my friend and others in this movement are starting to publish books and they're starting to get some traction at the Evangelical Theological Society um, and other places where this, this annihilation movement is kind of gaining some steam. Um, and so it is, not, it is not the historic Orthodox Christian view. Now, the third view, if you're from a Roman Catholic background, the purgatory view. Purgatory is a place or a condition in the next world. It's between heaven and hell where those who died need to be purified or purged. That's where the purgatory means. You need to be purged, purged or purified through suffering until the final judgment when once you've suffered enough for their sins, you may be able to enter heaven. Now, how do you get out of purgatory? Somebody can, who did I say? Yeah, you can pay an indulgence to the church, and if you pay enough indulgence, you can maybe pray and pay a person out of purgatory. Okay. And if they've suffered long enough in purgatory, there may be hopes that they can kind of work their way out of purgatory into heaven. Now, I know this question is going to be asked, so I preempted it. Where do they get this idea from Scripture? And my answer is they don't. Okay, not the Scripture that we have. Okay. They get this from what we call the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha are the non-inspired writings that we as Protestants don't accept. So if you look at a Catholic Bible, in between the Old and New Testament, there's what's called the Apocrypha, the Apocryphal books. In 2 Maccabees chapter 12, it speaks of Judas Maccabeus going to the temple with an offering of silver to make atonement for the dead that they might be delivered from their sin. So that's kind of the view. They get it from one passage from the um, Apocrypha. And what this does is a couple of things. Does the Bible say anything about a limbo or a place in between? Does the Bible speak of any place besides heaven and hell that you go to? Does the Bible say there's a second chance after you die to get out? And what's the basis for you getting out? Your own works or somebody else paying for you. Is it salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, and his sacrifice alone? No. So we can kind of reject the purgatory view. The last view is universalism. We talked about this last week. Uh, this view states that everyone goes to heaven. Hell is really what we're experiencing in this messed up world right now. God will make everything right in the end, and all will be with him. Progressives don't like to talk about hell because they're like, you guys talk so much about the afterlife. Life, hell is what's, what we have here on earth. We've got poverty. We've got COVID. We've got homelessness. We've got um, the environment. Let's be social activists and let's clothe the people that need clothing. Let's get this virus under control. Let's you know, basically take care of the environment. Let's do all these things to make the world a better place. And then you know, that's really what we need to be dealing with. Don't think about the afterlife. Let's, make, let's create heaven here. Let's create a utopia here. Okay, let's say, let's, let's buy their logic. Okay, let's create the utopia here, if it's possible. Even if you create the utopia here, what's going to happen one day? 
Jesus is going to come back, and there's going to be a final judgment, and there's going to be heaven and hell. So even if you try to create a utopia here, you're still, you're still dodging the issue of, of, of the finality of, of judgment. So, we're going to delve into some scriptures that talk about hell. Maybe you haven't looked at these. And again, I said this is not a pleasant thing to think about, but the Bible does talk about it. So we need to understand what the Bible says. Now, there's an Old Testament passage in Isaiah 66, 22-24, that directly talks about this. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I shall make remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. This is an Old Testament passage about the new heavens and the new earth and hell, a place where the fire is not quenched. Now, I'm going to talk about this in just a moment, what the word hell meant. and what, what, When people heard the word hell, what they, what they would have pictured in their mind if they were from Jerusalem area. Okay. Jesus talked more about hell than Paul or anybody else. Okay. Matthew 10, 28-31. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you're of more value than many sparrows. I love this passage of Scripture because Jesus says, Fear God who can throw you into hell, but then don't fear. Well, which one is it, Jesus? Fear not or don't fear? Here's the point. Fear if you don't have Jesus as your Savior. If Jesus is your Savior, fear not, because God's got the hairs of your head numbered. And that's a little easier for him than on some people than others, to have the hairs numbered. Now, the word hell. The word hell is from the Greek word Gehenna. Gehenna. Which was the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem, south of Jerusalem, they would send the trash. They would send the dead bodies to be burned. And when you looked outside the city to the south of Jerusalem, you would perpetually see smoke rising up from Gehenna. So for the Israelite, when they heard the word hell, they would think, oh, that's the garbage place outside of Jerusalem where the dead bodies and the maggots and the flies and the fire is. And then we always see the, the smoke going. There's never a time when the smoke's not going up. And so Jesus takes that image and uses the word eternal to it. Mark 9, 34 through 38. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to two hands go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, obviously, Jesus is being metaphorical here. He's not saying, you know, literally cut your hands and your eyes off. But notice the descriptions he uses of hell. It's a place of unquenchable fire. It's a place you're thrown into. 
It's a place where the worm doesn't die and the fire's not quenched. So there's something related to fire and worms and um, punishment. Now, let's talk about the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Is this a parable? Is this a true story? Um, It's true, but I think Jesus tells a story to communicate a point. So I think Jesus tells a parable, but the principles in the parable are true, if you understand what I'm saying. So let's turn to Luke chapter 16, um, starting in verse 19, Lazarus and the rich man. And by the way, this is a different Lazarus than the friend of Jesus who died and he rose, you know, called him out of the tomb three days later. Or four days later, actually. So Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades... Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you're in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convicted are convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Okay, a couple of observations about this passage of Scripture. Lazarus dies and he goes to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. That's probably a metaphor for heaven. And the rich man goes to Hades or hell. And how is it described there in verse 23? He's in torment torment and he calls out says have mercy on me Um, you know tip bring me some water because i'm in anguish i'm in anguish in this flame okay flame anguish torment there's some torment there's some anguish there's flames here for the rich man and he's in anguish and Not only is he in a place of anguish and flames, but look at verse 26. Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not. In other words, there's a huge divide between heaven and hell. Once you're in hell, you can't get out of it and somehow go back to heaven or go to heaven. It's fixed. 
It's a chasm. It's like the Grand Canyon. You, once you're there, what it's saying is it's the finality. Once you're there, it's final. It's a fixed reality. You can't get out. It's a place of torment. It's a place of anguish. And then what does he say? Well, I still have five brothers that are alive. Send Lazarus from the dead to go back and tell them about hell. And what, is, what does Jesus say? They've got the Bible. Paraphrasing. They've got the Bible. They have enough information from the Bible to know the dangers of hell. And even if he was sent back from the dead to go tell them, they still wouldn't believe. If they're not going to believe what the Bible says. By the way, this kind of thinks about those, those, those books, what, two minutes in heaven, five minutes in hell, those books where somebody goes to hell and comes back and tells you about it or goes to heaven. Um, the point here is this. The story of Lazarus. Okay. Number one, it's a place of anguish. Number two, it's a place of torment. Torment, anguish. It's a place of flames. It's a fixed place that you can't get out of. And there's enough information in the Bible to warn a person about hell that they don't need to send somebody back to go warn them from the dead. All right, let's move to Paul, and then we'll move to the book of Revelation. So Jesus talks a lot about hell, unquenchable fire, the place where the worm doesn't die, um, place of torment, anguish, flames. Okay, listen to what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. Talking about when Jesus comes back. To grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believed because our testimony to you was believed. Is that the picture of Jesus that these progressive Christians paint? Coming back in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on all who have not believed him, and then consigning them to eternal hell away from the presence of the Lord? Look at very clearly, look at, look at verse 8 very clearly. I don't know how more clear you can get. Jesus will come back in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who what? who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Is everybody saved? Is there such a thing as universalism? Is God all love and no justice? Is there a day of justice? Here it's called a day of vengeance. Okay? Now, Revelation 14 is probably the scariest, most graphic picture of hell, I think, in the Bible. So Revelation 14, 9 through 11. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, and in the presence of the Lamb, 
and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. God's wrath pulled and poured out in full strength, torment, smoke, torment forever and ever. They have no rest. You've seen those old comics, maybe from the far side, where people are in hell and they're having parties and, you know, they kind of make fun of hell as a place where, you know, I, I get to go with all my buddies and have an ending party. The description right here says there's no rest, there's torment. It's the full strength of God's wrath. Okay, what about the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, 11 through 15? Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And here's the most important thing. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And then one final warning from Revelation 21, 7 through 8. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I wanted you to see with your own eyes the Bible's passages on hell. Because it's a topic that a lot of times we don't talk about. But it's there. And you can't escape it. From the Old Testament to the mouth of Jesus to the mouth of Paul to the gospel, or to the, to the book of Revelation, all the way through. Now, talking about hell is kind of a downer, and I, and I understand that. But I want us to be very realistic about what the message of the gospel is. So let's, let's recap these three truths. Precious truths that are under attack. Okay, what was the first truth? All humans are born sinful under God's wrath, and deserving of judgment. I gave you plenty of verses that, that don't dispute that. Okay, number two. Jesus died on the cross in the place of his people to satisfy God's justice against our sin and to buy us out of slavery to sin. And then number three. Hell is a literal place of eternal conscious torment for all those who do not trust Jesus as Savior and Lord and die in unrepentant sin. Now, when we say these things amongst friends tonight, I can sense a heaviness in this room when you talk about hell, just even among Christians. Now, when you think about going out there and talking to people that have no clue what we're talking about, it becomes a little scary to bring up these truths. You can kind of understand a little bit, I'm not excusing it, but you can understand a little bit why progressive Christians are like, ooh, if I talk about these things, that's kind of offensive Modern sensibilities don't really accept this type of stuff. I might come across as intolerant, fanatical, bigoted, scary. A what? A man? <laughs> okay. A woman? 
So, these truths are biblical whether we like them or not. And we have no choice but to believe them and share them regardless of what the culture says. Because here's the bottom line. Just think about this. If these are true, does it do any good to tell someone they're not a sinner, Jesus didn't need to die for them, and there's no such thing as hell? Are you loving them? What's the progressive Christian want to do? We want to love everybody. We want to accept everybody. That's the most hateful thing you can do to somebody, is to tell them, don't worry about your sin. Jesus is an example. It doesn't need to die on the cross. And by the way, hell's not a real place. Just try your best to be like Jesus and make the world a better place. I'm trying to be compassionate and loving with you. Just God loves you the way you are. No, that's the most hateful thing you can do. Because you're not telling them the truth where eternity hangs in the balance on their eternal destiny. And so we can't compromise on these things. And um, a lot of churches don't like to talk about the wrath of God. A lot of churches don't like to talk about hell. They don't talk, like to talk about the bloody cross. They don't like to talk about sin. They don't like to talk about repentance. Um, but it's the message of the truth, and it's the only thing that saves people from their sins and gives them the hope of salvation. Um, so as long as I'm your pastor, we'll continue. I've got to cut my tongue out like Charles Spurgeon. So are there any questions tonight? Looks like we've got about, what, 10 minutes left here? Eight minutes any, any final thoughts here? Questions? Mm-hmm. The two absolutes, faith and blood. Yep, from Genesis to Revelation... And everywhere in between, you can't get around them. Oh, Brent, I see that hand. Hmm. Yeah, it could take more faith to believe the weirdness. I don't offend the, yeah. That's Pastor, first name Joel, last name Osteen? Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. We've talked a little bit about him in the past. Yeah, if we don't talk about it, maybe it won't be real. Maybe we can talk ourselves out of these things not being real so that we don't have to face the fact that they are real. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and here's, the, here's, the, here's what burdens me, everybody, is that um, the younger generation, the millennials, the, I don't even know if they're called millennials, the 18 to 30-year-olds, they're buying this stuff hook, line, and sinker because that's what the culture is telling them. Don't judge. 
Be, be who you want to be. There are no rules. You can't tell anybody they're wrong. I can live however I want. The Bible's kind of a fable. And so a lot of them are not, quote unquote, denying Jesus, but they're finding a Jesus that's more um, fits their taste. Because I think deep down inside, they know they can't just walk away from. Now, I will say this. Um, I've had a lot of conversations lately with people whose children have made some major ungodly life decisions. And over the past year, with all the stuff that's been happening with social justice and BLM and all this kind of stuff, they've just been swept right into that to the extreme to where it's like it's causing friction in their homes to where they can't even talk because they've gone their kids have gone so far off into the social justice movement that they they're, they're even looking at their parents as um, I don't know what the word you'd say a threat to, to them so um, it's real and we just need to be praying for the younger generation, uh, praying for our children and grandchildren. Um, we were talking last night. We have a group of 20-somethings that meet in our home every other Tuesday night. And we were, we're going through the book of Revelation. And I was challenging them um, with some things. And we were talking about how we asked them, you know, these are 20-somethings. We asked them, did you guys ever think it would happen this fast? Like, Don and I talked, we always think, yeah, you know, we've got a few more years and it'll be something that happens down the road and we can kind of get prepared for it. And, and all of them said, without a beat, they didn't think it would happen this fast. And, and the big question they asked me last night, I've got to think about this. I've really got to think about this because everybody's asking me this. The question is how? How do we stand up? That's a hard question. How do you stand up? when you're in the minority. And I don't want to give a flip answer because I think that takes a lot of thought in biblical study. So over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be looking at the Bible like, okay, people are asking that question. They're looking for leadership. I'm the leader. We've got to figure out biblically, how, how do we, in your practical day-to-day -day life, stand up for these truths when you know they're unpopular, when you know you're going to get persecuted, when you know that maybe even you're going to get ostracized at your job, you're going to get canceled, um, all those types of things. How do you do it? Um, and I want to think it through before I just give a pat answer because I think it's a complicated answer um, because we're living in a different world. I, I, I never, th I mean, I thought about these things, but the things that I've been faced with this past year with the COVID and now this are things they did not give you a seminary class. You did not get a seminary class. It was not Pandemic 101 or Social Justice Cancel Culture 201. That you didn't learn that stuff. And so we're all kind of going through this together. And, and scarily, all the you know, church people are looking at their pastor for leadership. And so I'm like, i got to be out on the edge of the spear here trying to lead us. And so uh, pray for me because I want to lead us well um, through this because like, we're right in the middle of it. And we, we, we need leadership um, on the local level. Um, that's another question I asked those kids last night, kids, young adults. I said, do you see a lot of leadership in our culture right now? And a lot of them said, we don't see a lot of leadership. And I said, well, look around this room. <laughs> you, want lead you don't see leadership. You're the, you're the leaders of the future. Just start stepping up now and being leaders. So anyway, I'm off my soapbox. Is there anything else that we need to talk about tonight? Are we good to go?
Ocus docus. That's, that's Latin for okie dokie. All right, you guys ready? Let's pray. Let's pray. All right. <laughs> Father, thank you for this time tonight. I know this has been a hard subject, but Lord, we have to understand the fact that we are sinful. Without Christ, we have no hope. We are hopeless, helpless, and hellbound without Jesus. Jesus, you died in our place on the cross for our sins, purchasing us out of our bondage, taking that justice, that wrath that we deserved, and we're so thankful, Jesus, for what you've done in your death, your burial, and your resurrection. And We know the Bible teaches there's a literal hell, Lord, and I know it's not a subject that we like to talk about, but Lord, if we want to be truly loving to those, we want to warn people. And, and as the sign says, as we leave this building, Lord, every day, or every time we leave this church out there, the words of Spurgeon, if people are going to go to hell, let them leap over our bodies and let us urge them and warn them and pray for them. Um, if somebody's going to go there, let them at least be warned and we tell them about Christ and his love and his death and the dangers of hell. Lord, help us to see that that's the most loving thing we can do. Lord, give us strength, give us courage, give us resolve to be the people you've called us to be um, in a world that doesn't really want us or want our ideas or want the truth. Uh, Help us to stand strong and for your glory and for the good of your name. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you guys for coming tonight.